Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Nolan Watson. He's the CEO of Sandstorm Gold Royalties, listed on the NYSE and on the TSX. We talk about the trials and tribulations uh, of the share price decline recently, explains why we get into their plans for 2021. We talk about Turkey uh, and what's what's happening there and what people's expectations are when they do get that right. Interesting chat, lost covered. Uh, if you want to hear our views on the conversation, the company itself and their plans, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's also commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. Some great insight in their, their training courses to help you with your diligence process. Summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you some time because we know you're busy. And if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas in a safe and friendly environment, free from trolling, judgment and abuse, you can go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Hope you think that sounds nice because it is. Nolan, how are you doing, sir? Doing great. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad. It's early in the morning there in Vancouver. Thank you for joining us. How's life? Yeah, no complaints. Life's pretty good. But is it back, is it back to normal there? You're, you're in the office, obviously. I'm in the office. Yeah, we're all kind of back in the office two or three days a week, but life's definitely not back to normal here in Vancouver, but I'm looking forward to one day when it will be. Yeah, brilliant. So are we. Uh, well, look, why don't we kick off? Give us that one-minute overview of the business. I'll pick it up with some questions after that. Yeah, so Sandstorm is a royalty and streaming company. So probably the best way to explain that is that uh, we're in the mining industry, specifically gold and silver in the case of Sandstorm. And instead of mining mines directly, what we do is we get a percentage of a mine's gold as they mine it. We get it for the life of the mine. So they mine their, their mine, they'll give us 2% of their gold. And we get that from many, many, many mines around the world. And we just sell the gold and we get the cash flow. Right. Okay. Beautifully explained uh, for the beginners here. Um, so mining without as much of the risk. I was going to say without risk, but there's risk. Um, so how long have you been at this? I've been at this for a long time. I've been in mining and dealing with royalty and streaming companies my entire career, really, uh, since I got out of university. And I was the CFO of the world's first ever streaming company. And we grew that up to a several billion dollar market cap company. And then I started Sandstorm with a guy named Dave Arm about 11 years ago. Right, okay. So you've, you've done what I think a lot of people would like to do. You, you built a $1.6 billion business in, in 10 years. That's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. But you're also going to tell me you're undervalued and the market doesn't appreciate <laughs> you. Well, I wouldn't be a C good CEO if I didn't. Right, okay. But in all seriousness, what's happened to the share price recently? It seems to be on a sort of downward trend since the middle of last year. Do you know what's happening? Yeah, I do think that right now Sandstorm, not to be cliche, is actually uh, temporarily undervalued here. We, we were actually starting to get to reasonable value, valuation levels sort of mid to last year. And then towards the end of the year, we saw the gold price pull back, all the gold equities pulled back even more. So all CEOs could argue they're a little bit undervalued. But what happened unique to Sandstorm was that right as those gold equities were pulling back, we had 20 million warrants that had been issued five years ago for a large deal we did. And they all came do we're in the money and um, all got exercised. And so an additional 20 million shares of supply came on the market and uh, materially reduced our share price. So, so we've dropped quite a bit because of that. Those shares are now finding their way into long-term fundamental investors' hands and we're starting to come back now. And you were doing share buybacks as well? And we did actually just a couple of weeks ago start stepping into the market and buying back our own shares. It's, uh, it's almost 
never do you see in the mining space a precious metals mining company that's a royalty company trade below their inherent nav and we are currently so we're buying back our own shares okay fine we, there's going to be a little bit of everything for different um, levels of investing capability and experience on here. So I'm going to start with some some of the simpler things first. Just remember vocabulary, okay? So royalty and streaming, give us your definitions. Yeah, a royalty company is a company that just gets a percentage of the gold from a mining company when they mine it. A streaming company is very similar. It's It's nuanced. It's we buy a certain percentage of the gold for the life of the mine, usually at a fixed artificially low Price. So it might be, we'll buy the gold for the rest of the life of the mine for $400 an ounce, and we might buy, say, 8% of the gold from the mine. That's a stream. A royalty is where they just give us a percentage of that gold. And so we've got a number of streaming contracts. Most of our contracts are actually royalty contracts. And so if we've got about 201 streams and royalties around the world, about, about 25 of those are cash flowing right now. Okay, cool. Well, I, I want to talk about that first. Okay, I want, I want to sort of want you to explain to people what it is that you've got because you can invest in exploration, development, producing companies, right? So maybe if you run through some of those numbers, I'm, let me tell you why, to what end, okay? Because I want people to understand the different models that can be employed by royalty companies, pure play royalty companies, companies, uh, royalty companies which also involve streaming and how they achieve the multiples that they do because the multiples are significant compared to regular mining companies. Okay, so maybe start off with you and then we'll get into how it all works. Yeah, you're right. So there are some companies that focus on just exploration assets in the mining industry, some that are just development companies and some that are operating. We have built a portfolio of royalties of all kinds of stages of assets. So like I said, we've got 24, 25 of our streams and royalties are in operation right now. We get cash flow from them. We're getting about 80 plus million dollars a year of free cash flow right now, US dollars. And that's from the operating ones. And then we've got about another 30 plus streams and royalties that are at the development stage. So they're at various stages of planning or in construction right now. And then we've got another 40 or 50 uh, royalties that are at what we would call an advanced exploration stage. So it looks like they found ore and they're trying to prove out how much gold is actually in the ground before they build a mine. And then the rest of our portfolio is what we would call early stage exploration. So geologists who think they're about to go find a gold mine. And so our portfolio spans everything from early stage exploration all the way through to currently operating. Right. Okay. And there's some pretty big players in the marketplace. You're, you're getting there yourself. So I say, you know, 1.6 billion, you were a lot higher than that in the middle of last year. And there's a lot of wannabes. There's a lot of companies coming through. Like the 50, you know, 50 million to 100 million mark, and they got to play a different game to kind of achieve the multiples that they want. Um, and after 10 years, I guess you've learned through experience or learned through mistakes and learned through successes, you know, what works best. Um, what, do you, what do you think of some of those uh, young Turks, those challenges coming through? Are they getting it right? Well, some of the, the, younger companies that have just started up. So we've probably seen over the last few years, over a hundred wannabe royalty companies started up. And the challenge is, is that there's you know five management teams in the world that know how to properly run a royalty company. And now there's a hundred brand new management teams trying to figure it out. And they're not quite there yet. We see them buy some really interesting things at interesting prices. They, um, I think they're about to learn some hard lessons. I think their shareholders are about to learn some hard lessons. But I, I would imagine that a few of those hundred will do well. I just don't know which ones at this point. Right. Because I think it's an interesting space because 
you've talked about your portfolio and you've got a big portfolio. You've got like just over, what, 200 assets? Yeah, something like that. You haven't really done too much in the last couple of years, have you? It's sort of been doing 119 sort of 200 of the past couple of years. Is that a reflection of you've got too much on your plate at the moment, you're just trying to get your house in order? Or is that a reflection of the marketplace? Why, why less M&A from you? Yeah, so we try to be as counter-cyclical as possible. So every now and then, every 10 or 15 years, the mining industry just gets gutted and everything gets crushed. And and uh, we manage our balance sheet well, and we like to buy a lot of things when there's blood in the streets, so to speak. So you see the largest portions of our growth when no one wants to talk about gold, when no one wants to invest in gold, that's when we're out there buying hard and aggressive. And then sort of in more normal environments, we build up our cash flow and balance sheets again. And then if, if things get soft again, we step back in. And so we feel that we make a lot of our money for investors when we buy things and the value that we buy them at. Right. Okay. And uh, I mean, obviously the, the price of gold last year did its thing and that's obviously helped you build up a bit of a cash reserve. Um, when do you see this counter-cyclical uh, style of yours coming back into play? What's happening in the market at the moment? Yeah, right now we're actually seeing quite a bit of a pullback and there is actually a reasonable amount of pain uh, that, that's happening right now. So we're looking at making some acquisitions we think this year. And uh, I'm a big believer that the gold should do well in sort of the medium term here, but not necessarily here in the next three to six months. So we're looking to buy a bunch of things and hopefully uh, those assets will re-rate inside Sandstorm going forward. So you enjoy it when junior companies or developers get funded that perhaps shouldn't. I don't, I don't like it when junior companies get funded that shouldn't because investors are going to lose money and it gives the industry a bad reputation. Uh, but what I, I do like is both ends of the spectrum in the cycle. So when things get really, really high uh, in terms of valuations, it's, it's nice. We're all making money. We all have PAs. We all invest in our own gold companies and other ones. But you know, at the bottom of the cycle is when we really do our business and make our money for investors. It's when we get those incredible deals. And we've bought some royalties for $3 million, $4 million that we think are going to uh, cash flow for us $8 million a year, every year for 10 to 20 years. Um, some of those deals that we get at the bottom are incredible. But those sounds like quite small deals. And you're going to be competing with some of those young Turks as described earlier at levels like that. Don't you, as you get bigger, don't you have to try and find bigger and bigger deals? You do both, yeah. So as you get bigger, the, the size of deal that we can do grows. We're looking at deals that are $500 million per transaction. But we're still looking for those transactions where we spend $5 million and we're going to cash flow $5 million a year for 20 years. I mean, that's $100 million of cash flow coming back to you. So we don't measure the size of the deal based on how much we have to pay out. It's how much do we think we're going to get back and, and is that a good deal? So what are the big lessons that you've learned along the way in the last 10 years? You'll have made mistakes. Yeah, I think one of the, the lessons that our entire industry has learned, and I've been on the forefront of that in a couple of different companies I've been involved with, is to make sure you don't overstream or, or make too large of a royalty on a project. I've seen situations where, where someone on the, the mining company side asks the question, how much money could I possibly get? What's the most money that I could get to go do this other thing that I want to do? And I think the temptation of a company like ours is to give them the amount of money that they want and to take back too much in return. And what you then do, you disincentivize them to invest in their own mine. They go, well, I've got three mines here. One, I've got to give a huge percentage of my profits away to this royalty company over here. The other two, I don't. 
all three need capital projects, which, which ones am I going to invest in? And the answer is it makes the most economic sense for them to invest in the capital development of the other two that they haven't overstreamed. And so that's, that's a really important thing in this industry to make sure you're doing is not overstreaming or overworlding a product, a project. Right. What else? What else? What else have you learned along the way? I would say one thing that I've learned and not, I, I think we've gotten this right at Sandstorm, but I've seen it go wrong in, in other places that I've worked is the balance sheet and managing the balance sheet through the cycle. We don't control the gold price. And although we think we can understand where it's going better than the average person, we don't have a crystal ball either. And so uh, making sure that we don't take on too much debt at the wrong phase of the cycle so that if commodity prices do come down uh, and would hurt us and have us have to raise money at lower prices and dilute shareholders, that's a situation that I've always wanted to avoid. Fortunately, at Sandstorm, we always have avoided that. I think we've managed our balance sheet incredibly well. We've got, and right now we have absolutely no debt. We have about $130 million of cash, tons of cash flow, non-core assets that we can sell if we want to. We've got a very strong balance sheet and we manage it that way on purpose. I like that price, non-core assets, because <laughs> when you're buying portfolios of assets, you know, you're going to get some good stuff, you're going to get some okay stuff, you're going to get some not so good stuff, or non-core stuff, right? Um, and that kind of makes it quite nice, that blended approach makes it quite nice when you're talking to the market in broad terms, because most investors don't have the experience, skill set or knowledge how to assess a portfolio individually. Quite frankly, neither neither do most brokers because it's too much work, right? So you you can you can cover up a lot of small mistakes along along the way and 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 just treat it as a kind of one big fat number. It's quite nice. You're lucky, right? It, absolutely, and that's an important part of of any capital allocator's job is to be able to do that. One of the benefits that we have is that our non core assets predominantly come in the forms of more liquid things than streams and royalties. So for example, if we're trying to do a, convince someone to sell us a royalty on a project that we love, and we'll say, we think that's worth $50 million, and they'll say, well, that's a problem, we need 80 million. Well, we can say, well, how about we give you a convertible debenture for $20 million, and we give you 10 million of equity, so there's your 80 million, but we're still only paying 50 for the royalty. And then that $30 million of other, that becomes non-core assets. And, and we manage those through the cycle too. So we've done deals where we, we bought some equity, bought a convertible, bought the royalty, and then the gold price went up, the market went up, we sold the convertible, we sold the equity, and we got 100% of our capital back. And now we're sitting with a royalty that we got for free, effectively. And so it's, it's an important part of our model. Absolutely, financial structuring t- totally is. Um, I mean, in, in a way you can afford to give companies money who are effectively then going to give it straight back to you, you're going to get a different multiple from them, significantly higher multiple for them. So the value to your market cap or your, your nap is significantly more. So that's what I'm saying. You know, do some, some royalty companies, some streaming companies are tempted to do deals perhaps they shouldn't. I mean, is that, would that be true to say? Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Right, but not you. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always the temptation, but if you have enough experience, you avoid falling for it. Right. Okay. No, just again, again, look, I'm just thinking of these, some of these companies coming through because there's, with, with, with all sectors, there's always periods where there are a lot more people entrance into the marketplace, uh, saying the same things, a lot of white noise, very hard for investors, which is what we're here representing um, to actually discern between what is good and what is bad. Um, because the noise sounds the same. I mean, what would you recommend people look for 
No, I, th- I think that's a really good point. And I, I see that too when I go to, say, a mining conference. I was at a mining conference just a year and a bit ago before we all got locked down in, in COVID. And um, I was sitting across the table from an institutional investor who said, I just met with this brand new royalty company. They gave me their story. It sounded amazing. What do you think? I'd say, well, I don't know if you've looked very closely, but they're trading at 200 times cash flow. <laughs> and, and their asset lives are seven years on average. So seven years from now, <laughs> they'll, they'll stop cash flowing and your multiple will get crushed to zero. And they'll go, oh yeah, you know, they're not looking into these things. They're just hearing royalty companies are amazing and they don't actually look at the fundamentals. And so I think what we built at Sandstorm is fundamentally an, an incredible asset base, diversification globally and, uh, and tons and tons of cash flow and, and tons of growth we built into the company. So we're pretty proud of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you built it off the back of, I mean, trying to emulate what Wheaton were doing. I mean, you you were, you, you were um, well, you kind of worked for Wheaton in a way. I was their CFO, yeah. yeah. I was their CFO, yeah. Right, okay. So you, you saw what they were doing, and that's not a bad model to follow. I guess it still, still is not a bad model to follow. Do you think you can hang on to their coattails? Do you think you are still doing the, the things which they've successfully done? Yeah, when, when we started Sandstorm, we started with a little bit of a, we took the experience that we had at Wheaton and we adapted the model a little bit in ways that we thought made more sense to get higher IRRs in the long term. And one of the one of the fantastic things about Wheaton is that they timed perfectly the silver market. And they started that company in, what was it, 2004, silver was $6 an ounce. And only a few years later, silver was over $20 an ounce. And and the, the valuation of their assets and the deals they had done had expanded tremendously. Now they're a multi, 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 multi-billion dollar market cap company. When we started with Sandstorm, we had the benefit of saying, okay, we're, we're small. That's a strength and a weakness. Let's use the strengths of being small, which is let's do each incremental deal that gets us the highest IRR and therefore the highest percentage share price appreciation. And we'll iterate the company more slowly so that we won't become a $10, $20 billion company for 20, 30 years down the line. But when we get there, we'll have the highest possible share price that we could uh, at that time. Okay. Talk to me about how important cash flow is to you. Because you, you told us one of the tricks of the trade there, which some, some companies, you know, they, they get cash for a period of time, but then the company stops, the, 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 the mine stops producing and they're back to zero cash. But they've got to keep up the pretense of growth. But the growth just fell off the cliff, right? So f- for you guys, had. What, what percentage of your business are you looking to either buy, um, you know, producers or are you have to buy developers, which are, you know, near term producers? I mean, ha, ha, what, what's in the mindset in terms of, again, I'm just trying to understand the, the, the model of how you protect or mitigate your, your risk. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because one of the challenges is if you think about it, this industry and this business model like a business person would. The best deals, the best deals are usually the ones where there's still some risk in the asset, but that risk is mispriced. Whether it's a, a development asset that doesn't have its permits yet, or uh, uh, you know other risks associated with the timeline in development, uh, you can get fantastic deals there. But the market, from a valuation perspective, is a show me market. It doesn't like to place much value on those types of assets. The market pays just for cash flow. And so we try to manage our business with a mix of enough cash flow deals so that we trade at reasonable valuations and our shareholders who are current shareholders are happy. 
with where we're trading at, but also doing enough transactions at earlier stages that we get incredibly high IRRs. Like I said, you know, some of those examples I gave before, you know, we've done deals where, uh, where it was a $75 million deal and people told us that, you know, why would you do that deal? It's going to be several years till the assets cash flowing. Well, today the assets cash flowing and it's cash flowing almost $30 million a year for us at today's commodity price, $30 million a year, every single year for long, very long mine lives. I mean, it turns into an incredible deal with incredibly high IRRs, but nobody cared about it on the day we did it. So we're, we're trying to balance our portfolio with enough cash flowing things now to get people excited, but enough really intelligent, longer dated deals to actually get that share price appreciation over the long run and actually make good money for shareholders. Right. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is how much store do you put by your technical competence and being able to work out if something's going to get into production, let alone when? Because if I look back, when we were researching for this, I look back at the Colossus deal. I think you guys learned a lot from that. You staffed up double quick time after that and said, right, let's, let's not go through that again. So do you think that that's part of your USP at the moment, your ability to actually discern what is where you can capture the most value by understanding it technically better than most? Yeah, we've got uh, the, some of the highest paid, in fact, the highest paid people and the highest paid person in our company is one of our technical staff, not the CEO. But we place a huge amount of importance on what, what the quality of people that we have in the office and we spare, we spare no expense on our technical team. And if our investors ever criticize me for spending too much money on a technical team, I'll tell them, go invest in another company that has crappy technical people and, and is trying to save money there. And, and I think you'll be pretty disappointed. So that is, that is a huge part of what we do. It is, it is at the core of who we are as Sandstorm. And, and our whole technical team is all uh, in-house right now. In fact, we're actually working with recruiters to add technical people to the team right now. Right. Talk to me about Turkey then. Okay. People, people put that up as, well, that could be problematic for you. That's taking longer than it should. So what are the actual problems associated with Turkey? Is it technical or is it in country? I mean, what, what, what do you think is going on there? Why would people be concerned? No, I think things are not, things are going fantastic there. They're going well technically. They're going well from a permitting perspective. Uh, I think that there's the worry that things might take longer than they should, but thus far they haven't taken longer than they should have. In fact, I would say a lot of our investors who, when we originally did the deal a few years ago, criticized us about how long things were gonna take, they've kind of shut up now because things have moved way faster than they predicted that they have. Uh, 2021 is a really important year for that asset. So the asset we're talking about is Hodmodin, which is one of our larger investments to date. Uh, Hodmodin has an important year here in 2021. It's a very, um, uh, catalyst rich year or should be a catalyst rich year for that asset. So the big, the big part of the permitting process, which a lot of people are doubting is called getting an EIA or environmental impact assessment granted by the government. We're expecting to get that here in the next quarter. So I would say, stay tuned. A lot of people never thought, you know, it, it would take seven years to get it. And uh, we think we're going to get it here in the next, next one quarter. So uh, we'll find out very quickly whether this asset is tracking on the, the path that I think it's going to track on or whether the naysayers are right. Okay. And you, but it's a slightly unusual structure compared to the rest of what, what you're doing. You've got a JV structure there, right? Is that correct? No, it's not, not quite correct. So originally there was a junior mining company who called it a JV structure for lack of a better term of what it was. But what they owned was a contract. And that contract gave them the right 
to receive one payment per year from the mine. And the payment was equal to, and there was a calculation mechanism that starts out with, you start with 30% of revenue and then you deduct 30% of certain types of costs. And effectively, when you're all said and done at the bottom of it, it's it's 30% of the net profits is the check that has to be cut. So it's not an equity interest in the sense that normally an equity interest, you could say, I get 30% of the profits, but then the controlling shareholder could choose to pay a dividend or choose not to pay a dividend or hold the cash in the company. This is a contract with a mandatory payment once per year that's like a what we would call a net profit interest royalty. So what we own is like a 30% net profit interest royalty. It's a payment that has to be made every year and will be made. So you don't care what it's called, you get some money in. Yeah. Eventually, at some point, you get some money. Right, okay. Again, it's an important point. You know, cash is cash. cash. You know, we call it a string, call it royalty, whatever you want. You're concerned at what the net contribution is to your bottom line. And you think this year's the year. We think this year is the year they get their EIA and they start actually building the early parts of the mine by the end of the year. Okay. Um, can we can we just talk about um, with regards to the balance of the portfolio? You know how much drilling is actually going on at the moment, and into what type in terms of exploration, development, and production? How much drilling is going on at the assets which you um, have strings on? Yeah, it's a, an important thing for Sandstorm is making sure that we're associated with projects where not only we think they're good investment projects, but the companies <clears throat> that, that have them think they're good and worth investing exploration money in and in companies where the shareholders agree and are willing to give them money to actually to go and uh, invest and drill. So uh, we think we've done a pretty good job of that in terms of constructing our portfolio. And so it, we've got a slide in our presentation, and if memory serves me correct, it was something like half a million meters were drilled last year on Sandstorm royalty properties. I mean, half a million meters, that's an enormous amount of exploration drilling. And it's been like that every year for the last several years. So I think we're just compiling the numbers now, but we think last year was the fifth year in a row where more gold ounces were found on our properties than were mined on our properties attributable to Sandstorm. And so that you can think about that. If you're getting 50 to $80 million a year cash flow, it was, it was 50 kind of four years ago, and it's now 80, and it's growing up, going to about 120, 130. But you're getting that cash flow every year, and then without any acquisitions, at the end of the year, you have still more gold in the ground than you did even at the beginning of the year. And then you do another year, you get all that cash flow, and you still have more gold in the ground than you did two years ago, and so on and so forth. So we're now running where for five years, we've had five years of cash flow. And if you exclude all of our acquisitions, we have more gold ounces in the ground than we did five years ago. And it's because we've been buying properties where the exploration success uh, is outpacing production. That's great. Do you think, I think that's a really, really important point to understand, uh, certainly in terms of valuations. And so the next question is about valuations. If I look at the Wheatons and the Francos and the you know, Cisco's and Royal Gold, I mean, the multiples are, Crazy, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're they're upwards of 25, 30 times cash flow. Uh, in terms of net asset value multiples, they would trade at you know from about 2.2 to three times net asset value, which is 2.2 to three times the present value of their future discounted cash flows. Uh, whereas Sandstorm's trading, you know, if, on a 2024 basis, once Hod Modern's up and running, it would work out to about seven times enterprise value to EBITDA, so seven times cash flow multiple. Uh, if you were to look at a net asset value multiple, we figure we're trading at 0.9 times, not 2.9 times. Uh, so we think it's it's quite a bit of a different value proposition for shareholders. 
It is. And what, what do you make of it when you see some of these um, smaller, 50 to 200 mark level, getting multiples even higher than that? Yeah, I think those are, those are mostly just, uh, you know, old stock market tricks of a bunch of guys get a small portfolio of royalties. They make sure they own 80% of the stock. They restrict the supply of the stock, then they market the hell out of it. And 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 the stock just goes to silly valuation multiples. And there's not enough liquidity for them to actually get out at those valuations. So it's a bit of a, a Ponzi scheme is the wrong term, but it's, it's not true, true value. I think what we're trying to do at Sandstorm is we recognize that the reason that the, the large companies in our industry, the large royalty companies trade at high valuation multiples is because if you're a large generalist investor, if you're sitting on managing many, many billions of dollars and you go, I, I want to buy two gold stocks and you don't want to go try to pick a mining company because you don't know enough about mining that if two major mines go under, then they're in trouble. You go, I'd rather have a royalty company, they're lower risk and they've got more diversification. And so I'm just going to go pick the two, two biggest ones or they might go the three biggest ones or they might go, I want three of the five biggest ones and they'll choose based on valuation. But but that's what, what's happening. And, and so there's so many investment dollars chasing those large royalty companies. And what we want to do is be larger, more diversified and more liquid than we are today and just keep moving into that sphere so one day it'll be Sandstorm that those generalist investors go, I just put $100 million down on Sandstorm. <laughs> nice generalist investor. Uh, <laughs> and um, they do that. They, they do that to some of our larger peers. That's, right. Okay. I, I just I think it's kind of interesting when I, when I see, as you say, the kind of smoke and mirrors or the, the have you described, described the actions of some of the smaller companies. Us kind of retail investor, family office types don't understand the fun and games played. And we can get fooled by the, you know, the, the barking circus master telling us that th their, their projects, their assets are the best, that we're in the, you know, we're near so-and-so. So the neurology bit seems to work quite well for them. Does that, does that irritate you or I mean, you just got to concentrate on your own business, I guess? Yeah, it does still irritate me. Uh, when I first got into the industry, it irritated the heck out of me. It was just incredibly frustrating because you can see someone who is is clearly misleading investors for the purposes of their own financial gain. And then when they're successful and they make tons of money, uh, what happens is they get rich and they leave the industry with sort of this bad reputation. And so it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. So uh, we we don't associate with those types of people. It's a small industry. Good, the good guys know who the good guys are and the bad guys know who the bad guys are and, and vice versa. And so we stick with doing good business with good management teams. It's, it, I mean, it's a, and it's a slight aside here, but it's an important point you make because we've spoken to a few CEOs whose primary concern is the damage that a handful of people are going to do to the industry as a whole because you collectively, kind of like your portfolio approach, you collectively get branded the same way. And I think you know, that possibly is, is, is harmful to you, to you guys as a whole. But anyway, let's, let's, let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. So um, with regards to some of the problems you identified at the beginning, uh, Warren Overhang last year caused some problems. You're hoping it gets into good hands. Do you enable that? As, I mean, how, how do you ensure that? Yeah, well, one of the hands that it's getting into is ours <laughs> through our share buybacks. And sure. uh, and then we cancel those shares. So we're sort of slowly alleviating some of that problem. But to answer your question with, with other investors, the way we try to alleviate that is we just go out and we try to spend our time 
with intelligent long-term investors, educate them about Sandstorm so that maybe they're not investors today, but uh, maybe next month or maybe next year. And so we're always doing a lot of work behind the scenes with the right types of investors to teach them who we are, what we're trying to do and why, so that that we'll always have a reasonable amount of quality investors looking for our stock. Right. Okay. And when you when you are going out to the market, obviously you're debt free at the moment. You've got cash in the bank, and but you still have to talk to the institutions because you need you need that need to help with that liquidity component. What are the questions you're getting from the big institutions? Have they got long memories? Are they harking back to things you've done in the past, or are they looking forward? Both. I would say that um, to the extent that those institutions have the same people that they had for a long period of time. They've got really good long memories, which actually serves us well. I mean, that's one of the things that I think allows people like myself to thrive in the industry is that I've been in the industry for 20 years and the people that have long memories have been able to follow me at every uh, stopping point in career that I've had and have always been rewarded. And everyone who's invested in every company I've been involved with has always made money. So that's a good thing. And I think that that's something that, that um, long memories are a good thing. What frustrates me sometimes is that you'll have a firm as a shareholder for a long period of time, but they cycle through their employees every two years. <laughs> so every two years, there's some new 26-year-old kid who thinks they're the smartest person in the entire world who now goes, what's Sandstorm again? <laughs> and you got to re-educate them. But that's, that's just part of the industry. We, we were all there. We were all that 25, 26-year-old irritating analyst um right <laughs> so okay so, so cash flow is good um you, and i mentioned at the beginning okay you haven't done much m a recently and, and it gets tougher with certainly with all this competition certainly down the bottom end and at the top end you don't want to overpay either right none, none of you do but someone usually does um which, with the, which i think is problematic so again what how much of your forward strategy is about organic growth well, through the drill bit or otherwise. Yeah, so or like I said, organic growth and just that exploration success is a huge part of our story. But I would say that we are geared up both financially uh, as well as motivationally to grow the company and to buy more things. 2020, despite it being a low deal volume year in terms of the deals we announced, it was one of the highest deal was the highest deal volume year in terms of number of deals that we worked on and deals that we pitched on and deals that we diligenced. And so it was kind of like a duck where it looks like everything's calm on the surface, but underneath we were paddling like crazy. And so far in 2021, our team's actually even been busier than 2020 last year. So I think that we will get some deals done this year. We'll get some small deals done. And I think we'll get some, some larger deals done as well. I'm hoping for it to be a an above average year in terms of dollar value of capital allocation. Right. Okay. So 2020 was, you're busy, but you thought people were overpaying. Well, in, in our particular case, it was actually a little bit unique. It was, we were busy. Uh, we set some new records for, for my career of closest we ever got to a deal signing with it falling through. I mean, literally I's dotted, T's crossed, Hey, we're signing tomorrow and it didn't happen. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and and had it happened, uh, would have been the largest year for us in terms of capital allocation. So, we don't. I don't expect that to be a normal thing that continues going forward. And I do think that we're going to be able to allocate a good amount of capital here in 2021. Right? Are you going to have to diversify even more than you? Because you talk about diversified assets, but it's mostly North and South America where they're going to the old smattering in in, in the in uh, well, a little bit in Australia, a little bit in Africa, but. 
Are you going to have to change your view of how you allocate capital to be able to compete? No, I think that, that one of the benefits of our model, of, of the royalty model, is that you can diversify without having to... I can step into a new jurisdiction and I'm just receiving checks from that jurisdiction. I don't have to go figure out how to operate anything within that. So it, it doesn't stretch our management team's bandwidth to continue to diversify the portfolio geographically. So we're in countries all over the world. We've got some slides in our presentation that show exactly dots for everywhere we've invested. And we're, we're global and we're going to continue to invest global. So the portfolio is just going to get more and more diversified around the earth as time goes on. Jurisdictionally, diversified. Yeah. 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 Right. right. Yes. But the commodity, you're sure on. Yeah, commodity. I mean, we are a precious, what we would call precious metal royalty company. So we're the vast majority of our stuff is gold and silver. We're about 25% silver right now at today's commodity prices. We have a little bit of copper in the portfolio, but that's really it. Uh, I think you'll see us 10 years from now still being just mostly gold and silver with a little bit of copper. Do you not, do you subscribe to um, that we are precious metals and, and thus it shall always be. You're not slightly excited by the, the battery thematic out there. Uh, I am excited about it personally. Uh, and I do think that of the, the other portion that's not precious metals in our portfolio, the reason I prefer copper as opposed to say zinc or lead or something like that is because I do agree with that thematic. Our strength as a technical team is in hard rock mining. So some of these more lithium and rare earth elements and other things, we're, we're just not interested in that. That's not our technical specialty. It's, it, they're not industries that we're going to try to be smarter than other people in. So we're going to stick to gold and silver and maybe a bit of copper. Okay. You've got a big year, you know, potentially on the M&A front. Well, on a, on a, lot, of, a lot of fronts. Um, what's going to actually move the dial on this share price decline that you've seen? What do you think is actually going to do it for you? Yeah, I think I think the stepping into the market and cleaning up some shares, I think is going to help. I think the biggest thing really is going to be the catalyst at Hodmodden. I think if Hodmodden gets permits and it gets into construction and people see that our growth is going to 120, 130 million dollars a year free cash flow over the next few years, that's going to be the biggest driver for sure. Secondary to that, I do think if we do a couple of large deals and really improve the quality of the portfolio this year, I think that will help too. Okay, and if Hodmon doesn't happen, don't worry, it's close to happening. You've got the option of saying that. Yeah, Hodmon is priced into our portfolio as if it's never going to happen ever. <laughs> so if there's any progress, I think that'll show through positively in our share price. Brilliant, brilliant. That was, no, I appreciate that. And it's the first time we've met, like I really wanted to meet you. Um, I'm, I'm sure if we uh, talk again, we can, talk, we can dive down to some of, the, some of these assets, the top four, five or 10 assets and see what you got there. But I um, just want to understand how you're thinking, how you guys have dealt with the stuff from the past and how you're moving things forward. So I appreciate your time today. Stay in touch. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.